Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Heritage Events Live, U.S. leadership in women, peace, and security. We are thrilled to have you here. Here are some tips for making the most of your virtual experience with us. Please submit questions through the questions tab. Feel free to share your name and affiliation. We love to know who's joining us. If there are any minor technical issues, we ask for your patience, as many of us are working from home and using home internet. I now invite Dr. James Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute at the Heritage Foundation to come on screen. We hope you enjoy the program. Hi, everyone. Thanks uh, for signing in to join us today for this webinar at the Heritage Foundation, co-hosted by the American Council on Women, Peace, and Security. Just a few housekeeping notes uh, to get us out of the way before we start. The session is recorded and will be emailed to you and posted on the Heritage website within 48 hours. And all the attendees are in listen-only mode, so you can only submit your questions in the chat box. We really encourage you to submit questions because we love to get to the dialogue. It's really important for us. When you do, it'd be great if you would include your name and organization. So today we're here to commemorate the third anniversary of the Women's Peace and Security Act of 2017 and how implementing it will help advance U.S. national interests in this era of great power competition. We are co-hosting this event with the American Council on Women, Peace and Security. And this is a historic moment because this is their official launch. While they may be new on the scene in Washington, the council experts have run an impressive track record uh, advising policymakers and lawmakers and informing the policies we're about to hear about. And, and honestly, we could not be more excited to be partnering with them and, and excited about the work they're going to do and the work that we can do together on this super important issue. We have a terrific lineup. We will start by remarks from our good friend, Congressman Michael Waltz, who is co-chair of the House Caucus on the Women, Peace and, and Security issue. And then a keynote address by Ambassador Kelly Curry, U.S. Ambassador for Global Women's Issues, followed by remarks by our good friend, Acting Secretary of Defense, Stephanie Hammond, and then a panel by a discussion of experts and practitioners. It is a packed event. Um, our moderator for today's discussion will be Dr. Susan Yoshihari, President and Founder of the American Council on Women, Peace, and Security. She's an advisor to the Defense Security Cooperation Agency. She's the author of two books, many articles. She served on the faculty of the Naval War College. We have that in common. Um, she's a career, she uh, uh, was a career Navy uh, combat uh, logistics helicopter pilot. No problem there, Gulf War veteran. Thank you for your service. Proud member of the class of Naval Academy in 1986. Nobody is perfect, that's okay. We forgive you for that. An alumni of the Naval Postgraduate School and the Fletcher School. Susan, thank you for partnering with us on this. I'm going to turn the program over to you. We are super excited for this event today. Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. I have to thank, uh, thank you personally for your leadership on this and thank the Heritage Foundation. When I walked in, I was uh, expecting a one-on-one -on -one meeting with Jim to talk about how we might be able to partner on this issue. Instead, I walked into an entire conference room full of his entire team uh, and the question wasn't what we can do, it's okay, you guys know what this is, let's get it done. And so his personal leadership and the institutional leadership from Heritage on this issue has just been 
terrific. Um, and we're excited to launch the American Council on Women, Peace and Security. We hope folks will look us up at uh, wpscouncil.org. Check us out. We're about uh, defending women's liberty, dignity, and opportunity. And we will be fleshing that out in our research in the years to come. So thank you. I am so grateful for the lineup of speakers. And it's my honor to, uh, to introduce Congressman Michael Waltz. And if you would like to turn on your uh, webcam after I finish your introduction, uh, Congressman Michael Waltz represents Florida's beautiful 6th Congressional District, which includes Flagler, Volusia counties, as well as portions of Lake and St. John's counties. He's a proud Florida native, combat decorated Green Beret, former White House and Pentagon policy advisor, small business owner, and proud father. He said that when he came to Washington in 2019, he brought that warrior spirit with him, meaning that he serves with everything he has without regard for self and with a sense of duty. And it meant he was determined to be part of a, what he called a new generation of leadership in Congress, servant leaders who lead by example with their values and who deliver results. Now, Congressman Waltz, would you join us on screen and turn on your audio as well? Congressman, we're so pleased to have you join us. You co-founded the WPS Caucus in the House. So what caused you to step up to the plate and take on this leadership role? What was it and, and how does that caucus interact with the, uh, the committees that have jurisdiction over this issue? Welcome. The answer is, is pretty straightforward from my perspective where women thrive around the world, where they thrive in business and civil society, uh, in politics, we don't tend to have an overwhelming extremism problem. I mean, where we, women thrive, the extremists don't. Uh, and if you look at case studies, which we could probably take hours to do around the world for that to be the case, but that's just, uh, you know, that's just been my experience. My experience has been as a, as a Green Beret, just hit 24 years uh, in the Army, still going in the National Guard, which means I'm still jumping out of perfectly good airplanes. But uh, it, from West Africa, Senegal, Niger, Nigeria, to, uh, to multiple tours in Afghanistan and lots of places in between, I found at the village level, at the community level, at the country level, and I dare say at the global level, uh, that basic premise to be true, not to oversimplify, but where, again, where women thrive, the extremists don't, and you tend to find a more stable uh, and uh, more coherent and cogent uh, uh, society, and, and regardless of ethnicity or regardless of other factors that are coming in. So for me, in my own experience, and then bringing this to Congress on the Armed Services Committee, on the Science, Space, and Technology Committee, that uh, of course, uh, uh, educating girls, helping women uh, in a lot of these conflict zones and a lot of these semi-permissive environments is a humanitarian issue that the United States should always take a leadership role in. However, to, in my view, it is absolutely a national security issue. And so what I love about the WPS is that it takes a much more systematic approach. It knits together a lot of very disparate efforts. There is a heavy component, which uh, I understand you'll hear about later from the Defense Department, that also recognizes this to be the case. And again, I've seen this from female engagement teams uh, that accompanied our Green Berets to be able to engage a whole other part of, uh, of society uh, in women that 
I was, uh, for cultural reasons, kind of precluded from engaging. That's out of the village level. But this takes it to a kind of country to country, um, you know, all of government and even military to military, uh, um, much higher and much more strategic level. And we'll see that, and I'm sure you'll hear that in the Defense Department, again, on armed services, when these WPS initiatives, whether we are training foreign forces or selling arms or conducting exercises, need to be spread uh, throughout everything that we do. So uh, I want to bring you to something you mentioned about uh, um, the caucus and your work on the Armed Services Committee. Uh, you know, when Congress was considering this law in 2017, uh, they estimated that it would cost an additional $500,000 all the way through 2022, uh, so quite a bargain. But in fact, uh, Congress has been very generous with this legislation in implementing it in the last couple of years. And I was wondering why you think that is. Well, number one, it's 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 a bipartisan issue, and and just to kind of level set, you know, the initial score uh, was so low in terms of the cost of this at 500,000 because really it was an administrative function to pull together a number of existing programs. Uh, I am proud of the fact that what is required in an F, in a FY14 law is no less than 50 million to be put forward towards uh, various initiatives for, again, for girls' education, for women's empowerment. But uh, I was part of the vote to get 165 million. Uh, again, these are a lot of existing programs and what WPS does is pull it together and make it part of a broader strategic issue at the cabinet level, whether that's Treasury, whether that's OPIC, uh, the Defense Department, the Commerce Department, the State Department, of course, USAID, of course, and to take a much more concerted and broad strategic uh, approach. And the Trump administration, to its credit, has really taken this on as a priority. Uh, Ivanka Trump has the uh, WGDP initiative, which takes a bit more of an economic approach and looks at women entrepreneurship uh, in business owners and how women are, again, often a stabilizing factor at the family level, the village level. And then what we need to do is elevate that uh, and empower them to elevate that to the country level. And you know, I just want to say, it, one, given the administration credit for taking that on at the most senior levels in, in the White House. But number two, now that I'm in this role as a congressman, you know, we need to, as elected leaders, explain to folks it is not always and it is not always easy to do why these initiatives overseas are so important. When you're standing in front of the town hall uh, and you have constituents whose own daughters are going to underprivileged or underserved schools and maybe hitting three potholes uh, on the way there, it's it's sometimes difficult to explain why we're sending money abroad to educate girls and empower women over there. But the, you know, again, when, when girls and women are empowered abroad, it makes their daughters safer at home. And when the world is more stabilized abroad, it makes the entire world, including our families here in Florida, more prosperous. But we have to continue to make that case. Uh, and I'm proud, I'm, I'm proud to do so uh, as a Republican and as a conservative. And what I love about a lot of the approach here is it's a bottoms up approach. Again, I, I'm saying it to the blue in the face, but it is a family, village, community level approach that then gets elevated upwards. And, you know, it, where people take on personal responsibility 
where we focus on entrepreneurship uh, and allow people and get government, frankly, out of their way and out of uh, and out of these women's way as a means to to create a better life for their family's future. Right, but I, you couldn't pretty much encapsulate women, peace, and security better than you just did. Um, I guess one question is, how do you keep it bipartisan? I mean, if if support really requires bipartisanship, how is the caucus and how are you going to keep this issue going forward to make sure it gets that kind of support? Well, you know, again, I'm happy to work with my my wing woman on on this, uh, uh, Lois Frankel. And, you know, it's easy to go to Congress and focus on what you disagree on. And Congresswoman Frankel and I disagree on a lot. Uh, but, you know, you have it's a concerted effort to come together uh, and to find common ground. Uh, and, I, you know, in addition to this caucus, I co-founded a, a caucus called Four Country, which are post 9-11 veterans, Republicans and Democrats who have seen what I've described uh, all over the world. And it's one of the reasons I think we need to get more veterans in uh, on both sides of the aisle, because, you know, when you've experienced it firsthand, when you've seen, as I have, an elementary school get machine gunned, uh, literally, uh, by extremists because they're teaching girls, that has a real impact. And as the father of a 16-year-old daughter, that's, you know, that's not a world. I don't ever want that happening here at home. And I don't ever want her to be threatened here at home. And again, you know, I want her to know about people, about strong women like Malala Yousafzai that we all should be talking about. And every, uh, you know, every young American girl should know uh, that she was willing to risk her life uh, just to have her own, just to have an education. And her family stood behind her because uh, abroad, when you take those kind of risks, you're putting your entire family at risk. So that's an environment to me that is a worthwhile effort. Uh, and, and one that we we really have to show leadership on uh, in the Congress, and and that that there's just no politics there. The, the enemy's bullets and the extremists don't know Republican or Democrat. They don't know black, white, or brown. Uh, they just know their own warped version uh, of of the world, and that's something we as Americans have to stand up against. Well said. I, it seems like this we're in good hands in Congress, and we hope it continues. We wish you well with the caucus, and uh, we are so grateful that you came on today to kick us off. Uh, thank you, and best of luck in November. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Uh, you know, we get we get that um, that job satisfaction survey uh, every two years, and that's our system. Let's all pray for a for a good, healthy, clean election. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. All right. Next, I'd like to introduce Ambassador Curry, and I invite you to turn on your webcam after the introduction and your audio. Ambassador Curry is the ambassador at large for global women's issues at the U.S. Department of State, and she was appointed to this position by President Trump in December of 2019. Prior to her appointment, she led the Department of State's Office of Global Criminal Justice, and she served under Ambassador Nikki Haley as the U.S. Representative to U.N. Economic and Social Council and the Alternative Representative to the U.N. General Assembly. Her team leads Women, Peace, and Security at the State Department. Welcome, Ambassador Curry. I invite you to turn on your video if you have it and your audio. I'm, I, I've turned on my video. Not sure why it's not coming through. Well, Can we you have you loud and clear on your okay. audio. Okay. Well, I'm not sure what's going on with the video. We will, <laughs> hopefully it'll show up at some point. Well, we've got your, we've got your photo. And so, um, and so we can proceed. 
Um, it's well, great to I'm virtually see you again. It's great to hear <laughs> thank you. It's it's wonderful to be with you, and it's um it's really great to to talk about one of my favorite topics, our women, peace, and security agenda. Um, I couldn't be happier to to follow my good friend, Congressman Mike Waltz, who is such a great leader on these issues and um, is a great supporter and and marshals our congressional support. I really appreciate him and his leadership on these issues and how he helps to drive this bipartisan consensus forward. He's, he's, he's a great friend and great supporter. And I really want to thank the Heritage Foundation, also you and, and Jim, and the work that you're doing with the American Council on Women, Peace, and Security. It's such an important issue and one that we don't get, I think, enough credit for, um, how the United States leads on this issue. So I really appreciate you helping um, to, to drive those messages forward. And oh, there I am. <laughs> um, and to, to give me an opportunity to talk about this, this great topic. I'm so proud of how our administration promotes women's empowerment through the Women, Peace and Security agenda, as well as through our interlocking initiative on women's economic empowerment, the Women's Global Development and Prosperity Initiative. These two pillars of my office's work are why we come in every day and are fighting for women here in the United States and around the world to attain the highest um, standards of opportunity and empowerment whether it's at the negotiating table in Afghanistan or in um, the marketplace in Ghana. This is where we're working to help support and empower women around the world. And we see these two things, women's economic empowerment and our women, peace and security agenda as interconnected and mutually reinforcing. And I'm really fortunate that the White House has set me up with such great priorities and such great tools to advance these two agendas in tandem and in mutual support of one another. We know, and as, as um, Congressman Waltz said so eloquently, societies that empower women, that allow them to fully participate across the economy, across politics, across all social spheres, are safer, more prosperous, more peaceful, and overall more successful. This is just a fact, and we see it every day here at home in the United States and around the world. And the inverse is true. Those countries that deny women opportunities, that deny them the full expression of their rights and, and humanity, suffer the consequences through violence, insecurity, um, poverty, and other forms of deprivation. So we are very committed to continuing the what we like to refer to as the low-cost, high-impact women, peace, and security agenda that we push here through our office at the Office of Global Women's Issues. Um, this is a great time to be focusing on it, as obviously we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of UN Security Council Resolution 1325, which established the women, peace, and security agenda on as a permanent feature of the Security Council's agenda and incorporated the idea that women's participation is essential to international peace and security and that we can't we won't succeed with our international peace and security objectives without fully empowering women's participation and this cuts across a number of issues that our office 
works on. But I'm really proud that um, with the passage of the Women, Peace and Security Act in 2017, and again, thanks to Congressman Waltz and Congresswoman Frankel, his wing woman, I love that. They're, so, they're the greatest um, team on this issue. And, and a bipartisan, almost unanimous group of members of Congress and senators, we have this incredible tool with the Women, Peace and Security Act that President Trump signed as one of his first official acts, one of the first pieces of legislation he signed when he came into office was the Women, Peace and Security Act. And as a result of that legislation, the United States is now the first and I think still the only country in the world with national level legislation implementing the Women, Peace and Security agenda. Lots of countries around the world have national action plans, but we're the only country that has actual legislation passed by our Congress, signed by our president, and that we are legally accountable to implement at the State Department and across the other federal agencies responsible for implementing this. So as part of that, the White House last year came out with a great women, peace and security strategy that then charged our agency at the State Department, the Department of Defense, the Department of Homeland Security, and the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, to develop implementation plans. And we released those implementation plans this summer. I know that um, a number of our participants today and, and a number of our our attendees present for briefings that are for agencies to those plans. And Susan, we have consulted broadly when we were developing those implementation plans, including folks like you, experts in the field, who helped us to make sure that we were hitting the target with those things. And I'm really proud of the, both the implementation plan we have and the progress that we've made against that implementation plan, because we started implementing it well before it was even done. I have to say, we're uniquely positioned at the State Department to drive this agenda forward, especially um, for key areas, policy, diplomacy, partnerships, and innovative programming. And these are the ways that, these are the tools that we're using every day. Through our global presence, we have a workforce of more than 76,000 people around the world, including um, tens of thousands of locally employed staff. And by integrating this agenda into our workforce training, into our, um, into our policy making, we are making a difference, not just for ourselves, but for the individuals who work for U.S. embassies and then go on to serve in their own governments or go on to um, participate in their own societies in different ways. We're inculcating in them this value and this from our overseas posts. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So advancing this agenda is not just something that we do alone. As I mentioned, we have tremendous partners. We do it in collaboration and cooperation with those partners and allies around the world. It's really important that we engage strategically with those governments to strengthen our WPS agenda, because this, as Mike said, as Congressman Mald said, prevents the rise of both repressive governments as well as violent extremism, all of which erodes democratic values and, and creates a permissive environment for human rights abuses, especially of women and girls. Authoritarian and repressive governments and extremist organizations 
um, are obviously the biggest threat to women's and girls' empowerment. They simultaneously undermine it by suppressing civil society, attacking human rights defenders and free media, um, reinforcing systemic gender discrimination, and failing to develop or enforce robust legal protections that, that allow women and girls to fully enjoy their rights. And they also continue to perpetuate um, biased legal and political systems that harm women. The United States, along with our like-minded partners, recognizes that women must be equal partners in building more sustainable peace and lasting prosperity. And so we've worked with those partners to develop programs and interventions that allow us to have an impact directly on the ground. Especially we work through regional organizations to promote peaceful, a more peaceful and prosperous world. And the meaningful inclusion of women in economic activity, governance and security, we see as key to achieving lasting peace and prosperity that redounds to our benefit here in the United States. If we're doing things like helping women to have um, a broad range of livelihoods, access to political institutions in their own countries, and building and peace building institutions in their own countries, it keeps us from having to deploy peacekeeping troops or our own troops, God forbid, into these volatile situations. And it keeps these threats from threat from arriving on our own shores. It also creates new markets and opportunities for our own citizens. So this is all, it's, you know, we, we make fun of some of our, uh, one of our big counterparts here at the State Department for talking about win-win solutions, but this is truly a win-win solution um, that, that actually does benefit us at the same time it benefits our partners. So we, that's, I think, key to why we have such high demand from our partners that we can barely keep up with in terms of wanting to work with us on this agenda. Um, at the same time, while we're working with partners that share our values and share our interests and enthusiasm for this, we're also critically involved in pushing back on the malign actors that seek to undermine women's participation, that seek to... Um, to change the normative framework that has allowed women to grow and succeed and, and create new opportunities for themselves. Chief among these right now are the Chinese Communist Party, the Iranian theocracy, and other regimes that really seek to change how societies are, um, how they engage human rights issues, how women are able to succeed. And so we've been really focused on calling out some of these bad actors in multilateral spaces, making sure that the UN is not um, lapsing in its own responsibility to address these systemic and structural attacks on women's empowerment and on women's rights and allow and not allow these countries that have bad intentions to to normalize bad behavior to do that through the multilateral system. This has been a really critical element of what we've been focused on, especially this fall as the UN celebrates the 75th anniversary of the um, UN Charter, the 25th anniversary of the Beijing Women's Conference, and of course, the 20th anniversary of the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. So we are really not just thinking about how we weave this WPS agenda into the fabric of our own national security and foreign policy agenda, but also how we and how that works when we are dealing with the biggest threats that we face as a nation and as a world. 
So with that, I think I'd be happy to turn it back over to my my good friend Susan to to take us to the next speaker, and hopefully we'll have some time for Q and A after this. Thank you so much for this great opportunity. You listen, the, the, you really gave us a tour, a tour de force of a tour around the world and what we're doing, and you really hit on a lot of what WPS is about, the preventative part of it, right, preventing conflict, but also there's the um, the trying to negotiate piece, and so I wanted to just turn your attention to Afghanistan quickly, where we do have talks going on, we do have women at the table, um, but we don't have women's rights in the settlement yet. And I'd just like to ask you, you're at the State Department, what are the prospects that we will see women's rights by the final settlement? Well, obviously this is one of our big challenges and as a, you know, a specific context where we are really working very hard. We're working with Ambassador Palazad and his team and with a very strong support from the secretary. Um, I know it came, I think it came out late last night, but the secretary just issued another statement condemning the latest attack. We had a wonderful, I mean, she's just, a remarkable young woman who we honored this year as the International Woman of Courage, Zarifa Ghaffari. Mayor, she's the mayor of a town in Wardak, which is heavily infested with Taliban. And she, it's called Maidan Shar, and she drives an armored truck to work every day. And this is the sixth assassination attempt that she has survived yeah. to this year alone since she was awarded the IWOC. She's been attacked, targeted twice. And the secretary issued another statement last night you know, and he he's been very clear that those who seek to use violence and intimidation to work their political will are not going to succeed, and they're not going to silence women like Mayor Ghaffari, um, who are standing up for the rights of women. Afghan women are among some of the most resilient, incredible people I've ever met. They are they have made so many sacrifices to fight for their rights, and they are not going to let them go easily. So I have a great deal of confidence that the women who are participating in this process, and not just those at the negotiating table, but the whole network of civil society and, and government officials and judges and lawyers and all of the range of businesswomen, of women who are, who have experienced the the changes that they've seen over the past 20 years, um, that they are not going to to let go of those things easily and that they will fight for those for their rights and their um their opportunities to be preserved. We stand with them, we stand behind them, and we will continue to support them. I'm proud to say that my office is working directly with um, with Ambassador Kalazad on this, and we have a whole range of activities that we're engaged in to help support the negotiations team, and not just the women on it, but it's really important that the men on the negotiations team also speak out for the rights of women, and we've been pretty um, encouraged so far by that. Um, and right now, they're just, they've just apparently today decided on the ground rules, so they haven't really gotten into the substance yet, but we see this as the best opportunity in a generation for Afghan to build Afghanistan to build a durable and inclusive peace. And we want all sides to take advantage of that. But that doesn't mean that we're going to, you know, that we as a country, you know, we'll see where they come out. We believe Afghan women and, and, and also Afghan men who are fighting for the rights of all people in Afghanistan are in a great position to help preserve those rights. Um, 
but we'll see where things end up and then we'll make decisions about how we engage that whatever comes out of that process because we're not going to invest in a government or society that does not afford women the rights that they their god-given rights so that's that's kind of where we are but we are very very active on this file it is one of my it takes up um, a lot of my time. In fact, I've got several meetings this afternoon on Afghanistan because it's such a big issue for us. It's a real test case for our women, peace and security agenda. Well, Ambassador, thank you so much. Thanks for your comments, for your candid answers to tough that tough question. I know a lot of women in the, in the women, peace and security world are looking at this very closely and uh, we know you're on it. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you for joining our launch. We look forward to working with you in the future. Congratulations, Susan. Thank you. All right. So um, next, we're going to hear from Stephanie Hammond, who is joining us via phone from the Pentagon. Um, Stephanie Hammond is Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Stability and Humanitarian Affairs. She and her team focus on the management and oversight of humanitarian assistance and foreign uh, disaster relief programs, civil affairs, embassy security and crisis response policy and coordination, international humanitarian and human rights law and policy, stabilization authorities, UN peace operations reform, and DOD personnel at the UN. And if that is not a big enough portfolio for her and her team, she also leads the Department of Defense COVID-19 Task Force for International Humanitarian Response. Welcome, Stephanie Hammond. Ms. Hammond, uh, are you on? Yes, I am, Susan. Excellent. Thank you so much. And, we just um, heard from Ambassador Curry uh, uh, what the State Department's doing. We'd love to know what your team is doing on WPS. Wonderful. I'm looking forward to uh, giving you and everyone on the line an overview. And um, thank you, too, to the Heritage Foundation. Um, Jim, it's great to hear your voice. And thank you to for co-hosting this event along with the American Council on Women, Peace, and Security. Thank you, Ambassador Curry and uh, Representative Waltz as well for your longstanding leadership on this important portfolio. Um, so DOD um, very um, forcefully supports the whole government implementation of the WPS Act and strategy. We view this effort as essential for our national security. The United States faces an increasingly complex global security environment characterized by protracted conflicts, record levels of displacement, and long-term strategic competition. Now, as our adversaries and competitors continue to seek a strategic advantage, the United States and our partners must be better prepared to meet these security challenges, which means we cannot afford to overlook half the population. Certainly, our adversaries and co competitors are not. Advancing WPS provides the department with a range of non-escalatory ways to address strategic competition, strengthen our relationships with our allies and partners, and position the United States as a partner of choice. By recognizing the diverse roles women play in conflict and by incorporating their perspectives throughout our plans and operations, we are much better equipped to confront the many security challenges we face. 
Now, as you all likely know, um, just this past June, we launched DOD's WPS Strategic Framework and Implementation Plan along with our interagency colleagues. And this was in accordance with the WPS Act of 2017 and then the um, follow-up strategy on WPS. In recognition of the relationship between our own ability to implement the intent of the WPS mandate abroad and how we organize, train, and equip our own forces, our plan acknowledged the need for the department to model and employ the WPS principles it advises other partner nations to uphold. This includes ensuring we continue to pay careful attention to the composition of our own personnel and the development of our policies, plans, doctrine, training, education, operations, exercises, and engagements with partner nations. This approach will support the national defense strategy and increase our operational effectiveness by helping the department to, one, strengthen alliances and attract new partners by demonstrating U.S. commitment to human rights and women's empowerment, making the U.S. the partner choice, and to, secondly, reform the department for greater performance and affordability by developing more effective strategies to mitigate risks and optimize mission success. And this plan details three overarching defense objectives to orient the department's implementation of the U.S. strategy, which are as follows. First, DOD exemplifies a diverse organization that allows for women's meaningful participation across the development, management, and employment of the joint force. Second, women and partner nations meaningfully participate and serve at all ranks and in all occupations in the defense and security sectors. And third, partner nation defense and security sectors ensure women and girls are safe and secure and that their human rights are protected, especially during conflict and crisis. Now, in recognizing these objectives cannot be accomplished overnight, the plan also includes intermediate defense objectives achievable over the lifetime of the plan. This plan will support and advance the department's ongoing activities to implement WPS, including training personnel and designing engagements with partner nations focused on WPS principles. Turning first to how we implement WPS, um, we here at the department currently um, have an active network of WPS advisors and subject matter experts stationed in the office of the Secretary of Defense, where I sit, the Joint Staff, the Defense Security Cooperation Agency, DSDA, and at nearly all of our combatant commands. These personnel advise and train senior leaders, commanders, and staff on how to integrate WPS principles into policies, plans, operations, and partner nation engagements. To date, we have engaged with more than 50 partner nations to demonstrate the value of women's meaningful participation to national security and to share best practices on the recruitment, employment, development, retention, and promotion of women in military forces. These engagements have included conferences, training events, standard operating procedure development, and integration of WPS principles in military operations and multilateral exercises such as Flintlock, Conquest, and Pacific Century. 
Additionally, we have developed and run a number of formal training programs targeted at WPS advisors and focal points, and we are developing and plan to pilot a training program targeted at senior leaders. We're also working to integrate WPS into existing training modules, such as training on combating trafficking in person um, as part of our effort to mainstream WPS throughout the department's various training courses where appropriate. We are working with the Defense Security Cooperation University, or DSCU, to integrate WPS into their curriculum for our security cooperation practitioners by hiring dedicated personnel to carry out this work. And Susan, we very much appreciate um, your dedicated engagement on this. In addition to being a legislative mandate, as mentioned, WPS training is essential for building out our subject matter experts and for successfully implementing WPS in the department. Working with our joint staff colleagues, we're also evaluating best practices for conducting more WPS courses virtually to make our training more accessible for those personnel stationed abroad, such as those working at U.S. embassies on security cooperation. This will help mitigate DOD travel costs and sustain our ability to meet DOD statutory WPS training requirements regardless of COVID constraints in the future. Furthermore, this will ensure that we are spreading this knowledge far and wide within the department by hosting these courses virtually. In addition to continuing our WPS training and partner nation engagements, I'd also like to provide you all with an overview of our WPS priorities moving forward now that we have our implementation plan since this past June. These include further institutionalizing WPS across the department by integrating WPS into department policies, plans, doctrine, training, and education, and encouraging our senior leadership to support WPS within their chain of command. Sustaining and building out our WPS subject matter experts across the department, including in OSD policy, the joint staff, the services, and all of the combatant commands. Working to further integrate WPS principles into security cooperation, guidance, training, and activities with partner nations. Working with regional offices to develop which partner nations we should prioritize for WPS engagements. Streamline engagements within our agency WPS activities in respective regions. And to ensure our efforts align with and support the department's regional priorities. Synchronizing our WPS efforts with the efforts of our colleagues in OSD personnel and readiness to ensure that we are modeling and employing the same best practices we are encouraging partner nations to uphold, and monitoring and evaluating our WPS initiatives to ensure that we are making progress on and ultimately achieving our WPS objectives. Now, in my office, um, in OSD policy, we provide policy and programmatic guidance on WPS implementation, and we coordinate closely with the Joint Staff, Combatant Commands, and Military Departments to ensure their WPS programs and activities are in alignment with the Secretary's strategic WPS defense objectives. 
We're also working closely with counterparts in OSD security cooperation and in DSCA, as mentioned, to ensure WPS and security cooperation guidance enables the implementation of WPS throughout our security cooperation activities. In conclusion, um, we've made a tremendous amount of progress on WPS implementation in these past few years, and the department has an opportunity and the momentum and capacity right now to carry this, much, uh, this work much further. Um, I look forward to answering um, your questions, Susan, and to hearing the panel uh, discussion following uh, this and continuing to work with you all on this important initiative. Susan, back over to you. Thank you so much. And, you know, um, I have to say I have been so honored to be a part of your team as a subject matter expert at DCSU, the university. I've learned so much, but most of all, I've been so impressed by your team, the team that you have with you at OSDP and the network of folks across the world, uniformed and civilian folks. It's truly impressive. And that's why I'm really glad that you were able to join us and give us a thorough um, discussion of it. Um, we're going to move on to the panel now because we're running uh, short of time, uh, but we will be taking questions from the audience. So again, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you, Susan. Next, I'd, I'd like to invite our panelists on. We want to, um, to introduce them. I'll introduce them individually, and then they're going to make brief remarks so that we can try to catch up on time and make sure we have time for questions. First up, I'd like to introduce Dr. Mary Habeck and invite her to have her audio on. Uh, Dr. Mary Habeck is a strategic planner and an expert in military affairs, Islam, and extremism. She teaches at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, Georgetown, American University, and while she is, I'm proud to say, a founding member of the American Council on Women, Peace, and Security. She taught American and European history for more than a decade at Yale, where she received her PhD in history. And she served as a special advisor for strategic planning on the National Security Council staff, where she worked on extremism. She's published widely, and she's working on a series of books now uh, about the ongoing war on terror. Welcome, Mary. Mary, um, I'm going to let you go ahead and uh, go ahead and start with your uh, comments. I wa just wanted to note that the law that was passed three years ago today, signed three years ago today, specifically mentions that women have helped to avert terrorism and violent extremism, and you can tell us more about that. Yes, um, I'd just like to raise three specific ways that women have made um, a significant difference in the fight against uh, both extremism and uh, violence in general. And uh, Mika, a very heartfelt plea for the deep engagement of women in all societies and cultures with national security issues where they can make an, an immense difference in the violence in their own societies. So, but there are three specific ways that women have uh, made a real difference when it comes to our current problems with extremism and in counterterrorism. Um, first of all, women are often the first to see signs of extremism in their societies and to raise uh, red flags about impending violence. So um, we have all sorts of uh, data about this, that women are um, have their sort of ear to the ground in their own communities and are willing to speak out 
and to uh, let people know that we have a problem developing in our, our community before violence actually breaks out. And once violence does break out or the extremists show up, they are sometimes um, also the first to um, engage publicly in order to oppose them. Uh, so for instance, in Timbuktu, in uh, 2012, it was women that took to the streets to oppose Al-Qaeda when they attempted to, uh, when they did take over the city and impose their extreme version of Sharia. And they faced a violent backlash, but that did not stop them. And some of those who participated, once the extremists were kicked out, then engaged in politics in order to be um, leaders in their community, um, people like Aziza Mint Mohammed, um, and make certain that the extremists um, were uh, unable to come back again. Um, they are also um, uh, very aware that they're, they're often the first victims of uh, extremist violence. Given the ideologies um, espoused by al-Qaeda and ISIS in particular, um, which are predicated on women being second-class citizens in their own countries, um, girls being married um, to older men, uh, girls as young as nine years old being married to, um, to older men, and they want to do something to prevent this from happening. So by including women in national security engagement, we have a greater chance of catching extremism um, at its very earliest stages before their ideology and vision becomes embedded in these societies. Um, but there's a second way that um, women make a huge contribution in fighting extremism, and that is as first educators. So in many of these societies, women can be the first educators, and in some cases, the only educators for their children. And they form and train children and have an outsized effect on their views of morality and on what religious views are acceptable or unacceptable. And by working with mothers, especially, um, we can raise their awareness of what it looks like when the extremists are seeking to recruit their children, especially their boys, and begin to stop the extremist recruitment pipeline uh, before it even begins. So this is a real hope for stopping the recruitment that keeps these insurgencies and this violence going in a lot of these countries. And finally, women can play key roles in two other areas, one of which I'm not going to talk about in depth because I'm hoping that someone else will on our panel, uh, and that is peace negotiations. Women have made a tremendous impact um, in peace negotiations and dealing with uh, these extremists after conflict has ended. So, for instance, um, in the discussion with the Taliban, women are deeply engaged and I hope making a real difference in how those negotiations are going. Uh, but the second area is something that people don't talk about as much, and that is women um, engaging in policing in uh, several key places around the world. It is women engaging in policing that have made a difference in um, stopping extremism. And the reason is because um, when women don't engage in policing, uh, then men um, will be the ones who engage with women in communities. And this often is unacceptable or seen as actually um, a violation of morality by some of these traditional societies. And so uh, when uh, Representative Waltz was talking about the female engagement units that are now deeply embedded with the U.S. military, this is um, a small piece of what is um, appearing on a larger scale across the great Middle East, women engaging deeply in policing issues in order to work, uh, for instance, to stop female uh, violent extremism. 
Um, and when they are not present, then we see real disasters for the local governments and um, in some cases on a regional or even global scale. And I'll just give one example here of what happened in a place called Lal Masjid or the Red Mosque in Islamabad back in 2007. Um, women were used by the extremists in order to implement their version, very extremist version of the Sharia on townspeople. Um, and so women would be um, heading around the town beating people with sticks and people didn't know how to handle this because it was women and women are um, held with a certain uh, degree of respect and you wouldn't want to be engaged in violence against these women. Um, but the police had to do something about this. The uh, government of Pakistan had to do something about this eventually, they realized. And so they sent in the military, all men, in order to deal with this. And the optics of this were so terrible of um, men shooting at women and, and children, as the extremists put it. And the result was a massive wave of recruitment for the extremists. So um, since that time, people have been working in order to engage with women, but there are many societies still where this is seen as um, outside the bounds of tradition and custom, and where our leadership on this issue and our partners and friends, I think, could be key. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. And I want to invite both of our uh, panel, other panelists to go ahead and turn on their webcams and their audio, Lucy and uh, also Nicole, because um, I'm going to follow right on with Lucy, who's also going to talk to us about that part of the world um, and essentially the, the real hard cases, what happens when things do go wrong, peace isn't kept, uh, intervention doesn't work, and women aren't protected. So I'm going to introduce Lucy Asuyan as the president of Aziti Relief Fund a nonpartisan nonprofit organization providing educational and medical assistance to internally displaced persons and refugees in northern Syria, Iraq, Turkey, and the United States. She is an Aziti who hails from Armenia, and her organization is breaking through humanitarian access barriers right now to help women in northern Syria, and especially their children uh, born from sexual slavery at the hands of ISIS terrorists. And that's why we're really, really happy to have you on, Lucy, to tell us the story of these women. Where, where are they? Where are they right now and their children? And, and um, how are you helping them? Tell us their story. Hello, everyone. I would like to express my deep gratitude to Heritage Foundation for organizing such an important conference in the the COVID-19 in the entire world with precious lives it took, economies it broke. I would like to spot a little light on whom, um, on, on women and children whose case remains as dire as it was since Islamic State of Iraq and Syria started its brutal campaign against the Yazidi minority that has been peacefully enjoying its livelihood on streets, streets of Shingal, stretched beneath of Mount Sinjar. In a few words, I'd like to use this unique opportunity to speak about challenges that women of ancient Mesopotamia are facing from internal community and the entire um, society. As I'm sure many of you have heard of ISIS collecting its spoils of war um, by gifting and selling Yazidi women into sexual slavery, raping them as means of purification from their only religion that they've been practicing, and in many cases, killing them if they refuse to follow with the formal acceptance of Islam. 
Some of women who were sold into sexual slavery made their way back to home by escaping their captors, only to discover their entire families were missing and were left with facing with stigma of rape. For those women, a massive work has been done thanks to countless individuals, NGOs, and media that worked with Yazidi community that was able to accept them back by making their case exceptional. For those women who experienced in full the horror of ISIS capability and remained in captive all the way to the end of the war that was marked on December 9th, 2017, they are left alone to deal with the aftermath. These are the women who are given a gift of freedom that has a very heavy price for them. While in captivity, these women have been used as sex slaves as a result of refusing to accept Islam. Many of them gave birth to children that Yazidi spiritual council decided it will not accept as a result, um, it will not accept as their own since per Iraqi law referring to uh, Article 26, Section 2 of 2015 National Identity Card, the law states, children follow the religion of Islam um, um, from Muslim parent. That contributed into trauma of Iraqi minorities and is viewed as a threat that made patriarchal Yazidi fearful for their existence. As a result, many women decided to stay in Syria with their children since the Kurdish government of northeastern Syria supports freedom of religion, practice or none, as well as letting mothers to choose how to raise their children. And mother's desire is to raise her child as a full member of Yazidi community. Although Kurdish regional government of Iraq offers same support to those women, the Iraqi identity card law applies to Kurdish regional government of Iraq as well. For this woman to go back to Iraq is to remain in a lifetime living in a safe housing and in constant fear for their own and their child's life, since they refuse to accept the choice to give up their child. What can be done is to create a safe religious and political environment for a mother and child to raise her child with a healthy well-being healthy mental well-being. Although northeastern Syria is a safe haven at the moment for them, uh, it, is in a, it is not in a stable region and it's facing many challenges of survival on its own. Furthermore, the economical instability can dangerously contribute into child's future choices that can be detrimental in the future and have to be prevented while we still can. We are asking governments of specific countries to accept this group of Yazidi mother and child so that she can be properly treated for PTSD and other mental health conditions obtained while in captivity. We are asking for help and we are underlining this case as urgent because these children are growing up on a daily basis. Every child deserves the chance and child is not to be held accountable for its biological parent parents' criminal activities. I urge each and every one of you, if you have any available tool or desire to help or to contribute in this task, please join us as there is nothing more rewarding than to give it another chance to a child. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you. Um, Lucy, uh, briefly, one of the things that you and I have talked about is this issue of children born of war is universal. We, there are hundreds of thousands going back throughout history, but right now, 
in the wars in Africa and in Europe and here in the Middle East, there are so many of these children who are born of sexual violence and conflict. But we talked about is that uh, using rape as a weapon of war by embracing these children, do you think that that takes away that weapon of that stigmatizing these children? Sexual violence against uh, religious minorities has been weaponized on purpose of leaving behind a child that serves a, as a living, breathing testimony of the past humiliation, if you will, uh, that in its turn uh, is a lifetime trauma for a child itself. And of course, if embracing these children, which were born as a result of rape in the aftermath of, of war, will disarm this terrorism uh, on women, uh, and, and this type of weapon will be meaningless because now they know whoever would like to, um, the perpetrators will know that this will not have any further effect. This is a lifetime effect that will affect the communities. And now you took away that weapon away from them. So I, I believe in the long run, they will be, they will not be using that. Yeah, thank you. Um, next, I would like to introduce um, Nicole Robinson who's joining us from Heritage Foundation, uh, our co-host. Um, and we're grateful to have Nicole here. She is one of the many young, brilliant people you will meet when you go visit Heritage Foundation. There's uh, so many uh, young, bright, up and coming experts um, at Heritage. And Nicole is a research assistant for Middle East policy in the Allison Center for Foreign Policy. Uh, her interests are in economics, security, political challenges facing the Middle East and North Africa, as well as women's empowerment. So she's been very um, instrumental in this roundtable discussion on women's empowerment at Heritage. Um, she looks specifically at Iran, Lebanon, and Yemen. She studied, uh, she received her BA from the University of Minnesota, and she studied at the University of Jordan while working at the Stabilization Network and the Near East Foundation there in Jordan. She is fluent in Arabic and she's pursuing her master's degree in Arab studies at Georgetown University. Welcome, Nicole. Nicole, you have delved into the research. Uh, what is the link between women's empowerment and peace and stability? This is really the so what of this whole agenda, isn't it? Yeah, um, thank you so much for that really important question. Uh, before I answer, I really wanted to thank you, Dr. Yoshihara, for that kind introduction. Um, I also wanted to thank the American Council on Women, Peace and Security for helping organize this event with the Heritage Foundation. I think we had a really great lineup of speakers and panelists that joined us today to discuss such an important topic to Heritage. So WPS is a really wide ranging issue, so I wanna keep my reflections brief and allocate additional time to our Q&A section. So I will focus my remarks on two areas, which I think are really key to understanding the issue. First, I wanna address your question, the so what question of women, peace and security, which I think the current administration understands and has taken actionable steps to implement. Second, I wanna briefly mention public data that can guide policymakers and researchers who are focused on women, peace and security. It cannot be overstated that women play a vital role in preventing and resolving conflict. Research has shown and the Trump administration has echoed in its national security strategy that societies are more peaceful and prosperous when women are empowered to participate fully in civic and economic life. Since 2000, there have been many global and regional commitments to advance WPS, but there's been limited progress achieving those commitments. 
However, three years ago on this day, uh, the United States signed into law the Women, Peace and Security Act, the first legislation of its kind in the world. Since then, the Trump administration has been a great champion of women, peace and security. As, amb as Ambassador Curry mentioned, uh, following the mandate of the U.S. strategy on women, peace and security, the U.S. National Security Agencies released implementation plans that lay out steps uh, to advance the leadership, participation and safety of women. So the question really is, where do we go from here? Data is really important to inform policy and pro programming. The integrity of policy is only as good as the raw and uninterpreted data by our policymakers to formulate legislation uh, and oversight. So there's a number of tools online that researchers and policymakers can use to deepen their understanding of women, peace and security in various countries. The tool that I found the most helpful for me in my research is the Women's Stats Database created by Dr. Valerie Hudson through the Bush School at Texas A&M. This database is really comprehensive and detailed. Policymakers can explore the situation and statuses of women's political, economic, and social, uh, social security country by country. Uh, it's available to the public, uh, relatively easy to use. For anyone interested, I can send the website link in the chat box. Finally, I want to conclude my remarks by briefly mentioning how the Women, Peace, and Security mandate can maximize its impact. First, country selection is very important. The WPS mandate can provide the United States with strategic opportunities to deepen relations with partner nations. This can be an effective foreign policy tool in the era of great power competition. Second, data collection and monitoring and evaluation are important to make sure the United States stays on track and continues to create programs that advance women, peace, and security. With that, I'm happy to answer any questions in the Q&A. Thank you, Dr. Yoshihara again. Thank you, Nicole. We we do have some questions actually that are coming in. So I, I, the first question was about the uh, Afghan peace talks, which Ambassador Curry uh, went into detail on. Uh, she's very busy on um, on Afghanistan. So that was the first question. There's another question that came in, and that is um, how COVID-19 has affected WPS implementation. Um, so, you know, maybe Lucy, you could tell us about humanitarian access and the difficulties there and uh, and how uh, the COVID situation has affected your work trying to get help to uh, those refugee camps in northeast Syria. Northeast Syria has been always complicated part of the world to work with, but COVID-19 has completely paused all of our work and we had to ask uh, nearby governments like Kurdish regional government or other governments that we could approach to issue specific licensing or permits for our, for example, when we were, if we would uh, deliver the medications to the camps via trucks because we were purchasing a lot of medications, then the trucks would be just staying in Erbil or on the border, they had no freedom of movement because everything was paused. And so we had to uh, place tremendous amount of effort and work to open those, at that moment, that border to pass through and to deliver the medications. But obviously those medications at that moment and whatever we do right now at the moment is not, it's just not enough as entire government and all the countries are on the pause. And given the fact that Syria is already war-torn zone, it's very difficult for us to perform our day-to-day -day tasks. It's it's um, not uh, impossible, but extremely difficult. 
This one is for Mary. I'd really like to hear more from Mary about the impact that women make in negotiations and policing. Other examples and how they've impacted uh, negotiations. That's from Shay Garrison. So negotiations are one of those areas that have been really widely studied when it um, comes to women's participation. And uh, the result is uh, that when women participate, you're more likely to get movement towards peace and negotiations uh, actually come to a successful conclusion. If women are not included, then you're less likely to have uh, negotiations that lead to a peaceful solution. Um, that's just the, the very uh, bottom line. Um, and this is why uh, it's so important for women to be included when it comes to the Taliban negotiations that are currently ongoing. If they aren't, what we could expect to see is a situation that's very unstable, in which you're going to have unsatisfied parties and a likely outbreak of violence um, uh, shortly after the conclusion or within a few years after the conclusion of the, of the peace talks. Um, but when it comes to policing, this is something that actually is also um, a sort of a new area. Rather, uh, the negotiation piece has been studied by a lot of people, but policing is something that's only just now being studied. And um, I've uh, looked at it in a, a lot of different contexts. So, for instance, in Mexico, when women were included in policing in a very serious way, um, not only did you have less corruption, when it came to the police force in Mexico, local police forces, but also the national police force in Mexico, but also you were less, um, you were more likely to get action against the cartels um, rather than simply accepting them and finding some way to live with with the cartels. So that that's a really important piece. But when it comes to extremism in, in particular, what we usually have are very unsuccessful examples, like the one with Lal Masjid, where you didn't include women, and that uh, led to the radicalization of as many as a thousand um, young men um, into the ranks of Al Qaeda. Um, but we also saw the same thing in Iraq. When the United States, before the United States had female engagement units, um, there were multiple instances when uh, the wives of extremists were also engaged in extremism and extremism violence. They were either inciting, financing, or physically engaging in violence uh, and terrorism themselves. And in order to uh, deal with this, the United States decided to just send ordinary soldiers in to arrest them. And um, this visual was enough to radicalize some communities because women being dragged off by the occupying men. Um, once you had the inclusion of female engagement teams, that visual went away. And actually, um, people were more likely to work with the United States and to give up the terrorists and the embedded insurgents once they saw that there was somebody who could uh, deal with the situation who was not going to be a male um, arresting or committing some sort of violence on a woman. Thank you. Nicole, did you have anything to add? Yeah, I think uh, echoing uh, Dr. Habeck, it's um, really important to include women at all levels in any sort of processes, um, peace processes uh, on the local level, and it just uh, creates sort of everlasting stability, um, and it's important to think about uh, in terms of WPS. You know, one of the questions we have is, uh, as we've reached the third year of this great um, initiative, 
what more can be done and what are the gaps in the regions that still need to be addressed. So, you know, we, we focused on a particular theme here. And as we um, go forward, we will have other events that looks at different themes and different regions. We focus pretty tightly on uh, the Middle East in, in a way today. But we do also couch this as an era of strategic competition. The national security strategy is very clear. The last one that was written um, was very clear that we're in a strategic era of strategic competition. And the strategy on women, peace, and security mimics that as well. And it's very selective. It's targeted towards certain regions. Um, I noticed that uh, um, in, our, in the remarks from the, um, Stephanie Hammond, the acting uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, she out highlighted the way that she's got this network team around the world. And there's a really outstanding group in Indo-PACOM that has been for many years uh, training, educating, working with, uh, providing best practices to international best practices to some of these countries in Asia as well, um, with a view to making the United States the partner of choice. Uh, anyone care to talk about what that is, what the partner of choice is, and how that works, uh, and maybe some gaps where we still need to focus? Um, uh, as you and I were talking earlier, I, I have um, a lot of respect for our partners and our allies and friends, the people that we've been working with closely um, in Europe and elsewhere who are convinced that this is necessary and that have high level uh, engagement on this issue. So um, I'm, I'm especially, as I mentioned to you, impressed by the Hidayah um, Center in Abu Dhabi that is doing just terrific work on this issue as it is on extremism kind of across the board. But <clears throat> it seems to me that um, what we need is more coordination and cooperation across borders and regions. The extremists don't um, I believe that borders and boundaries matter, and so they just sort of bleed across borders into sometimes places that are more permissive and where we have fewer good partners and friends to work with. So, for instance, into Iran, there's no way for us to work with um, the, the Iranian government in any sophisticated way on this sort of issue or any others that deal with uh, the problem of, ter of uh, terrorism and extremism, even though they have an interest in getting rid of it as well. Um, and even with partners and friends, sometimes they don't give it the high level um, sort of uh, interest and funding that it really needs. Um, those countries that have a problem with it understand that they need to do something about it. Those who don't believe that it's something that's just a problem for those people or those people, but not really for us. And so I'm, I believe the United States can show a lot of leadership here in working to um, create these kind of partnerships and cooperation across regional boundaries and borders. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm, I would really love to see how the U.S. take that on as a task. Susan, this is Stephanie Hammond from DOD. I'm still on the line and oh, can try to with this. Oh, I'm so glad. Thank you. Um, the panel discussion was just excellent. I've uh, really appreciated this conversation. Um, so as you mentioned, yes, here at DOD, we do have a very strong network of WPS advisors um, located here in OSD policy, joint staff at the combatant commands, um, DSCA, DSCU. Um, and that network has really helped us leverage the comprehensiveness of WPS throughout the department. Um, Indo-PAC 
come, as you mentioned, and I think your idea to do several follow-up uh, deep dives regionally on WPS is an excellent idea, and um, uh, me and the team are very uh, glad to work with you on those follow-up conversations. But uh, we've seen China recently um, recognize the effectiveness of WPS as a soft power tool to advance their global reputation, their global interests. Um, China's made recent public statements of supporting commitments of funding for WPS and uh, multilateral forums. But right now, the U.S. has such a strong leadership role on WPS. Ambassador Curry um, very eloquently uh, detailed this in her opening remarks. Uh, the United States is the only country that has a national action plan, a follow-up act, and a strategy, implementation plans that the respective departments and agencies within the U.S. Um, government have now pushed across the finish line. Now it's our responsibility to maintain that global leadership within this very important uh, portfolio. And I think um, one of the benefits of this important discussion today is um, everyone outlined why this is important. Now we need to uh, discuss, you know, more the nuts and bolts of how we work with our allies and partners. And another thing, too, to highlight is we're seeing our allies and partners come to us for um uh, for insights and advice on WPS and um and uh that's been really encouraging to see Colombia um has come to us and asking uh uh, you know, how uh, how do you retain female service members uh, in your military, and how do you incorporate them in senior defense roles? Uh, uh, Mrs. Uh, Lisa Hirschman, who's our chief management officer, recently traveled with Ivanka Trump to Columbia was joined by our Southcom um, uh, combatant commander, Admiral Fowler, Ambassador Maines for follow-up engagements too with the Colombians. But this is something where they've reached out to us um, saying, we recognize the United States as a leader in this area. Um, please work with us in further strengthening um, this area within our respective um, within our respective country. Burma, too, I've done extensive work with Burma policy over the years um, with Heritage. And uh, Burma is another one uh, who's been coming to us. And uh, we're working with them through our U.S. Embassy in Burma on um, a workshop that's coming up. Um, and this workshop's including individuals from the Burmese government, parliament, political parties, civil society organizations in their uh, defense sector. And in this workshop, we're going to highlight the importance of women's participation in their peace and security processes. So there's, um, there's a lot of very good follow-up work that we can further discuss. Susan, back over to you. Thank you. And I understand um, another, talking about being selective, that um, Philippines also is another country that is sort of ripe for, uh, has already taken on um, a lot of this issue and is also an excellent partner, obviously a partner um, 
you know, a security partner for many years as well. One of our guests has given us a question, um, really a, an insight I think that we can talk about, which is that um, China has also made inroads uh, talking with leaders who are less democratic, uh, more authoritarian in the Middle East um, and elsewhere and that um, by engaging leaders on in, including human rights for all people, for the entire population, women included, that um, that is about American values as well. You know, American values, values we believe in, but universal values, a spokesperson from universal values. Um, have you seen that play out, Lucy, uh, Nicole, or Mary in the Middle East where uh, engaging specifically on on rights uh, for women has been a way to engage government to government, leveraging that? We see that clearly northeast of Syria. We saw the woman being very active in the war against ISIS and now women participating directly or actually being in the leadership positions to draft peace talks with Syrian government. It's it's incredible what the woman can do to build the peace and build the bridges among and between the communities. But at the moment, what I'm very fearful is for the future of in case if we let it just um, go away, may not turn back to us in a very positive manner. I think we have to develop some kind of a roadmap to approach the case that is actually burning on hand, especially to approach those women in our whole camp to figure out how we can encourage Yazidi women who are still among the ISIS wives and are terrified to come forward because they have no access to media, they have no idea what is developing outside the world. Um, the condition in our whole camp is extremely difficult. We heard a lot of news. Recently we've been so busy with COVID-19 and rightfully so that we actually given up to, not given up, kind of don't have enough time um, to to also underline on what's going on in a very near distance of us. And and the Alhol camp is actually ticking bomb for all of us. I think we have to also speak about it and think about what we can do actively to prevent future, future chaos that can arose. Thank you, Lucy. We have a question, one more question before we need to close. And that is from my dear friend, the president of the Naval War College, Shoshana Chatfield. Shoshana and I flew helicopters back in the olden times together. You can see over my shoulder this gorgeous H-46 that um, is no longer flying uh, in this country, but we are veterans. Shoshana, uh, we need to congratulate uh, Admiral Chatfield because the Naval War College has become the first professional military education to require education in women, peace, and security. Uh, we, heard, we hope it's the first of many. But her question is about what have we learned from um, armed forces in the United States, uh, the recruitment of women, the retention of women, uh, the promotion of women uh, here that we can also share that knowledge internationally. And I think, um, I, I, you know, I, I know, Mary, you, you teach military affairs. I know that there's also an extensive network of uh, women in military affairs 
the Europeans, NATO has looked at this very closely, and I know there's a lot of great um, resources if anyone is interested in looking how NATO has integrated this. And certainly, uh, from my perspective, 24 years in the Navy, I can say that uh, we have learned a lot. We have some way to go, but we have learned a lot about uh, retention, recruitment, and promotion of women. Mary, would you like to uh, chime in on other militaries and what they've learned from the United States? And then make it brief, and then we're going to wrap up. I wondered if our Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense would like to answer this question. This seems like it's right up her alley, and my knowledge is going to be outdated, uh, whereas Mary, hers is going to be right up to date. Yes, are you still with us, Ms. Hammond? Yes, and can you, um, I am still here, can you repeat just uh, the uh, final few sentences of the question? Sorry, you're breaking up a the question is, what have we learned about recruitment, retention, and promotion of women in our own security sector here in the States that is valuable in our uh, security cooperation internationally with other militaries? Yeah, we've been working a lot with um, OSD personnel and readiness on this and um, now have a, a diversity and inclusive uh, program here at DOD that uh, we've been very proactive with. And um, OSD personnel and readiness has been taking the lead on this within the department. And um, as you mentioned, if we'd like to do a series of follow-up engagements, um, we could incorporate them to talk about lessons learned and best practices. Um, what my office will do is focus very much on the uh, partner nation front and how we can plug in with uh, partner nations in these areas um, and needs that they have. But as far as internally within the department, uh, personnel, you know, and readiness uh, has done a lot of great work, of course, over the years um, within DOD. Thank you. And I want to thank all of our speakers today, all of our panelists. We even have more questions, but we've run out of time. Uh, this is not, this is the beginning, not the end. We will have follow-up discussions in the future. Please check us out at our websites. You've got the information there in front of you. Check us out, like us on Facebook, please, and follow us on Twitter. And thank you all again for being here today.